As the year starts, we've been starting a spiritual growth campaign to grow spiritually. This year, I'm changing the name from the spiritual growth campaign to just a sermon series entitled For God and Godliness, because I truly think that is exactly what typifies what spiritual growth is about. It is for God and for godliness that we strive. We strive to glorify him through living for him. Here's the heart of what I want to get into you in this sermon series over the next month or so. I want to clearly explain the best I can and how scripture tells us. I want to clearly explain how we can grow as Christians because I think many Christians find themselves wanting to grow but are not exactly sure what that means or how to do it. I mean, how do we how do we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior? How do we strive for holiness? How precisely does one train oneself for godliness? Sometimes we use these things as platitudes, but we're not exactly sure what these things mean or what course of actions they imply. And so today, that's exactly what I want to start doing. I want to start, I want to start explaining what spiritual growth is and how to do it. Three notes before I start this series. Number one, I am not preaching to you, please understand, as somebody who has arrived at some fixed point of godliness. I'm preaching to you as someone who is striving for godliness and who is pointing in biblical directions. So I'm not asserting myself to be someone as I preach this. I am, I am locking arms with you. And I am encouraging you to come with me in the pursuit of God and godliness. So that's the first thing. Second thing... Um, The spirit that I want to bring to this. I, I want to bring the right spirit to this sermon series. And that song that Todd led us in, holiness, is, ex is the exact spirit I'm after. It's holiness. It's brokenness. And that is what I long for. It is a heart conformed to God. It's a mind conformed to God. It's a will conform to God's. And so when we talk about spiritual growth, the definite point of reference is God and conformity to him. Thirdly, some of you have sat through the spiritual growth campaigns for a few years now. And so that you're going to hear some repetition in some of, the th some of these things you've heard before. Not all of them, but some of them. Um, the repetition is good. And I want you to embrace that and apply to your life what you haven't applied yet. And if this is new to you, I want you to be open-minded, open-spirited. Um, know that this is coming from Scripture and it is coming from a pastor who truly wants to bring the right spirit to it. And I don't want to... Um, 
I don't want to overstate the case, but I don't want to understate the case either. So as I preach, I just if you would pray for me that I'll bring the right spirit, and if you would pray for your brothers and sisters here that um, their hearts would be opened and that we would all be brought into a greater conformity with Jesus Christ. So, here's my question as I start. What is the call on the Christian life? To answer that question, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Is that Abe back there? Do I see Abe? All right, Abe. All right. You're the man. I told Abe I was going to call him at 7 o'clock in the morning to come. I didn't actually do that, but he's here. So I'm thankful for that. What is the call in the Christian life? The Apostle Paul writes the following. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There's a song that was popular in the 1990s that set forth a vision of the Christian life with the following refrain. It said, we fall down and we get up. We fall down and we get up. We fall down and we get up. And the saints are just the sinners who fall down and get back up. And the saints are just the sinners who fall down and get back up. Now, I ask you, perhaps you've heard that song, but just hearing the lyrics of that song, I ask you, is that all a saint is? Someone who just falls down and gets back up? Or better stated, is that all a saint is called to be? In my mind, this presents us, this idea of a saint who just, all he is, is just someone who falls down and gets back up. It presents us with a remarkably feeble vision of the Christian life. It presents us with a vision of a saint without victory. It lays before us a man without tangible spiritual progress. I don't see any ambition of holiness. There's no aspiration of fruitfulness. But there is a complacency with falling down and getting back up. There is no holy ambition. And yet it is meant to typify the Christian life. Of course, I am a sinner. And of course, I will fall down and I will get, bu- get back up. But what am I called to do and what am I called to be 
from Scripture and through the mouth of God. What I'm after in this first point here is not necessarily the theology of e- in evangelical culture, but the mood that evangelicals too often adopt. The mood, I, I, we live in a very therapeutic age. And there was a great book in the 1950s that, that saw this coming called Triumph of the Therapeutic. And one, uh, one theologian has written a book expanding this idea recently called The Rise and the Triumph of the Modern Self. You look within yourself, you accept yourself, you love yourself, and I, my fear, my great fear is that Christians, and especially preachers, have adopted this kind of therapeutic mentality and are using grace and the love of God as a means to facilitate spiritual complacency. Compare that song, We Fall Down and We Get Up, as almost a way to make you complacent with the fact that you're not making progress with the words of the New Testament. You are the light of the world. So shine so that others might see it and glorify your Father in heaven. Compare it with These words of Christ. By this my Father is glorified. That you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. Compare it with the words of the Apostle Paul. And he died. That those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him. Who for their sake died and rose again. Compare it with the reformers. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Romans 12, the passage we read, marks a shift in the book of Romans where Paul moves from the sacrifice of Christ to the sacrifice of ourselves for Christ. He moves from possessing the Holy Spirit to living in the Holy Spirit. He moves from receiving the grace of God to being empowered by that grace to live for God's glory. My central thesis in this, in this spiritual growth campaign is that the call on the Christian life is to live intentionally for his glory. That thesis has an implication. And the implication is this. Whatever specific direction we may give for growing spiritually as a Christian, those specifics are going to be incorporated and subsumed under the main call to live intentionally for God's glory. So spiritual growth, in other words, takes the direction of living for the glory of God. So do you want godliness? Godliness aims at God. That is the key to godliness. Looking at Romans 12, 1, 
more carefully. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God. What are the mercies of God? There's every, that's everything that has followed before in the book of Romans. And now, in, if you study the book of Romans carefully, you will notice it's, it's, it's basically as close to a systematic theology that we have. It carefully lays out the logic of Christianity. The main movements are three. In verses in chapters 1 through 3, you and all men were deserving the wrath of God, but Christ died in our place, became a propitiation for our sins. That means a mercy seat or the, set, the center at which God's justice and wrath took place. He became that for us and rose again that we might share in his life. That's chapters 1 through 3. Chapters 4 through 5, this is all according to the Old Testament scriptures, and it culminates in peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is the new Adam. And now, you see, your problem or your glory is which covenant head you're attached to, Adam or Christ. Because you will, you will receive the life of your covenant head. Then in chapters 6 to 8, Paul explicates this even further by telling us that we are united with Christ. Christianity is not just believing. It's actually something happens to you. Really, metaphysically, spiritually, something happens to you in the heart and in the heavens. You are united with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit indwells you. And now, the, the way the old Puritan Henry Skogel put it was perfect. Christianity is about the life of God in the soul of man. That's it. It is Christ in you, mediated through the Holy Spirit. So you're more than just forgiven as a Christian. More than. You, you are forgiven. And praise God for that. But you're more than forgiven. You are united with the life and vitality of God. You're united to the vine so that the life of Christ flows through you. I am the vine, you are the branches. So if you took a, <coughs> you cut a, a branch off from a tree, its only hope of living is to be grafted in to another living tree. And so us as branches have been grafted into Christ and we receive the life and vitality of Christ and his fruits are produced through us so that we bear the fruit that came from the life and vitality of the vine to which we were connected. There is Christianity. It's on the basis of that truth that Paul makes the appeal. So, by the mercies of God, I appeal to you, to do what? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable before him. 
Don't over-spiritualize spirituality. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable before him. That means what you do with your tongue. That means where you, what you do with your hands. What you hear. What you see. Where your feet take you. Your habits. Present your bodies. Bodies. Things you touch as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable before him. So we must not over-spiritualize spirituality. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You know God still requires sacrifices? He still requires sacrifices, only living sacrifices now. And not for atonement, not for the forgiveness of sins, but for worship. Holy and acceptable means to be separated from the world and devoted to God, given over to God. And Paul reminds us that this is our spiritual worship. The the Greek there is somewhat um, ambiguous. It could be spiritual worship or reasonable service. Either way, it's that which comes in you, reasonable, it's rational. It comes from within your soul, in other words, and it's given to God in service and worship. So, as Christians, while the, the world will say, well, it's my body, my rights, it's my life, I have the right to do with it what I want. I tell you solemnly, brother and sister, that we have no right to speak about ourselves that way. We do not have the right to do what we want with our bodies or our life. For the Apostle Paul tells us, you are not your own. You are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So, bringing this together, the main point I'm driving at here is salvation is being saved from hell. But it's not just being saved from something. It's being saved to someone. It's being saved to God. So the call on the Christian life, understand, is to reorient our lives so that God is now the ultimate point of reference for what we think, who we become, and what we do. God is the referent point for our life. And we are being brought into conformity with God. This is why it's called relationship. Christianity is a true relationship. It, because it's the way we relate to God. It's a true relationship with God. Here's a great truth I heard recently by, uh, by another pastor. Think, think for a moment, remove the romance and everything, but think for a moment of your relationship with God in an analogous way to the relationship with your spouse. Now, if there was a, a husband who would never do what his wife would, the wife said, can you wash the dishes? And the husband said, well, is this a divorce issue? Because if it's not a divorce issue, I'm not going to do it. Uh, or, or can, can we go out to Valentine's Day dinner? Uh, wait a second. Will you divorce me if I don't do this? Because if you're not going to divorce me, 
you know, that I can find something better to do. Let's not be legalistic about our relationship. If it's not a divorce issue, it's not needed. Right? We don't want to be, we don't want to works marriage. I, I submit to you humbly that that is what I have seen, not in this congregation. But that is what I have seen in evangelicalism. We treat God that way. If it's not a salvation issue, it's, it's treated as if it's legalism. And any requirement placed on the Christian life is seen as work salvation. Now, of course, there is legalism, and that is a problem, and we cannot earn salvation, and we cannot earn God's favor. But I'm not talking about earning God's favor. I am talking about living for God's glory. I'm not talking about entering the kingdom. I'm talking about living in the kingdom and for the king. I'm not talking about being in Christ's work. I'm talking about building upon Christ's work. So I think evangelicals must embrace the fact that when you enter the door to a place, the reason you've gone through the door is to live in the room. And once we've entered the kingdom... We don't want to stand in the doorway of the kingdom. We want to live and move and have our being in the kingdom of God and be thoroughly shaped by him and his truth. So, now that we've entered the kingdom of God, we must live for the king. That's the call on the Christian life. And I Submit to you that it is the key, the first and fundamental step for spiritual maturity and growth. Now, the great enemy, having set that point, the great enemy of spiritual growth is complacency, as I've mentioned before. Do you know if you, na- if you don't aim at anything, you'll hit it every time? So what we must do as Christians is have an aim. And I am afraid, to reiterate my point earlier, I am afraid that evangelicals have used grace, the grace of God and the love of God as a means for being spiritually complacent and to actually facilitate passivity in the Christian life. Here's another story. Some of you have heard, some of you haven't. But there was, I saw on Facebook, a Facebook video a few years ago of a young girl being baptized in a local church here. And it was a young girl, 10 years old, being baptized. What a joyous and holy occasion, a baptism. The pastor came up with a, a, such a nonchalant attitude. And... and uh, what he said has always hit me wrong. He, he, he put his, his arm around her shoulder and he said, you know, before this, per, before this little girl was being baptized, I wanted to iterate something very important to her. And that, that is this. I said to her, no matter how close you want to get to God, you will fail. And no matter how much you fail... Jesus will never love you any less. And there was a pious hum throughout the congregation. Mm, yes. 
That is true. And my, my deepest heartfelt problem with that is, of course, we will fail. And when we do, we have an advocate with the Father. But baptism, understand, baptism is a public identification with Jesus Christ in a commitment to walk in the newness of life. Romans 6, 4. Instead of forecasting a lifetime of failure at a person's baptism, how about calling them to walk in the newness of life? How about looking at them with solemn exactitude and joy, daughter of God, elect since the foundations of the earth, child of the Most High? Second Peter 1.3 His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. For this very reason, daughter, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from becoming unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Don't just tell her to be complacent about her failure. Tell her... Don't tell her about a lifetime of stumbling. Tell her about a God who is able to keep her from stumbling and to present her faultless before the presence of his glory with great joy. It is so true, as has been written before, that evangelicals are addicted to mediocrity in the Christian life. What I want to encourage you to and myself to is a holy dissatisfaction and a sanctified striving for God and godliness. In the vein of the Apostle Paul, who wrote, not that I've already obtained the resurrection of the dead or am already perfect, But I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal, towards the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Maturity, Paul's saying, is about pressing on towards the goal. So my problem with the therapeutic mood is not to say that it's never good to dig into your feelings and your psyche. It's very helpful. But once you've done that, 
realize that it is not good to just stew and exist in that and just come to grips with who you are, but press on. Let the joy of the Lord be your strength then. Press on to bring yourself to the truth of God and to intentionally, with God's help, live into those realities. So the call of the Christian life is to live for God's glory. And the enemy of spiritual growth and progress is complacency. Those have been my two points so far. The goal of the Christian life is to glorify God. The enemy of spiritual progress will be complacency and passivity. And that is something we are all drawn towards. Don't feel bad right now. Don't, don't think I'm trying to beat you up. We drift towards complacency. We drift towards passivity. We go in that direction. Our flesh pulls us in that direction. So, what we must do through spirit-empowered grace is move in the opposite direction. Like the Apostle Paul says, I bring my body into submission and bring it to obedience through the power of the Holy Spirit. So to press on means to go in the opposite direction of where the flesh is taking you. Because we will slide in the other direction if we don't move in the upward direction. The third thing I'd like to get into you. So the goal is to live for God's glory. The enemy of spiritual growth is passivity and complacency. The target is godliness. The aim of God is godliness or God-likeness. The aim of godliness is God-likeness. The Greek word for sin in the Bible, in the New Testament, is hamartia, which means to miss the mark. So when an archer pulls back his bow, releases his arrow, and misses his target, that gap between what he aimed at and where his arrow actually landed that gap, figuratively speaking, is sin. Do you understand that? So it's the gap. Sin is the gap. So figuratively speaking, sin is the gap between God's will and our lives. And that shows us that we are not just sinners, but we are sinful, full of sin. Why? Because we deviate to various degrees and in vital ways from the truth, holiness, and life of God in our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So that's the gap. So if sin is to miss the mark, godliness is to aim at God. And I see, as I read the New Testament... I see this being the will of God from the very beginning. This has always been God's will to have a people who reflect exactly who he is. In the beginning, we were created, created in the image of God. 
to reflect his nature and his character. Well, that didn't work out. So when he calls a people, Israel, what does he say to them? Be holy, for I am holy. Be who I am. The point of reference for your life is me and my character. When that didn't work out, and men had lost their way, God sent the exact imprint of his nature. The radiance of his glory, the perfect image, Jesus Christ, died on, on, for our sins and showed us what God is like and revealed his character as a man. Therefore, in the New Testament, the exhortation is the same now. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are to be imitators of God as beloved, as beloved children. Peter, God has called us to his own glory and excellence. Romans 8, the goal is to be conformed to the image of Christ. To strive for righteousness and true godliness and holiness. Everything is about being brought back into conformity with Christ, who is God. So, the goal of Christian living, the goal of godliness is godlikeness as exemplified in Jesus Christ. The love, the patience, the mercy, the holiness, the love of what is good, the hatred of what is evil, the joy, the peace, the very attributes of God are what we are to reflect because godliness aims at God-likeness. What I'm talking about, for those theologically inclined, are the communicable attributes of God. The communicable attributes are those attributes that God communicates to us. So we're not talking about his all-powerfulness or his omniscience. We're talking about his communicable attributes, his mercy, his justice, his peace, his patience, his love of good. That's why it's so good to study the nature and character of God, because it shows you what you're called to in the Christian life. What I'm talking about is best captured by the word spiritual formation. Spiritual formation is the process by which the spirit takes on a certain form. So our spirits are taking on a certain form as Christians. And so I want to see when you talk about when we talk about growth or maturity in the Christian life. It's not like a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. Something just beautiful and just lovely that can fly now and has wings. So it, it's not that's not the point we're getting at. We're not talking about growth into something beautiful. It's more like, as I said before, a branch being united to a tree and taking on the form and character of that tree and producing the fruit of that tree. That's what we're talking about. Conformity. Not just growth in the abstract, but 
but growth unto godliness and godlikeness. Um, so, fourth thing I'd like to add, share with you are the means. So, if that's the goal, what is the means? So, how do we do this? I'm glad you asked. That's what this spiritual growth campaign will be about in the coming weeks. But to set it forth before you in just a snapshot, God has given us, number one, the Holy Spirit. The life of God and the soul of man to kill sin and to live a godly life. He has given us his word. Did you know man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God? He's given us prayer to find grace and mercy in in times of need. He's given us a body, a fellowship to serve, to be built up and to build up, to stir one another another up to devotion, love and good works. Then he's also, because spiritual growth or formation is not just about yourself, it's also about giving out. It's also about what you do, how you sacrifice for God's kingdom. And so two things God has given us. People and possessions. And he's also given us a mission. So with regarding the people in our lives and the possessions that he's given us, how can we steward that? How can we steward what God has entrusted to us for his glory? With regards to the mission, how can we sacrifice for God's mission in our life. Those are the means of grace that God has given us. The spirit, the word, prayer, the body of Christ, people and possessions to steward, and the mission. And that's what we'll be talking about for about a month. And I want to encourage you to diligently apply yourself to these means of grace as, as we unfold them in the coming weeks. Spiritual disciplines is what I'm talking about. And the key to understanding spiritual disciplines is that it allows you to do what you cannot now do by direct effort. It's a great Dallas Willard phrase. A spiritual discipline is an activity within our power that allows us to do what we cannot now do by direct effort. So... I am not free to bench press 300 pounds. Perhaps I'll never be. But there are some men who have the potential, yet they're not free to bench press 300 pounds at the moment. Why? Because they haven't yet disciplined themselves to that end. But if they take up a diligent regimen of exercise and eating right and a bench press routine, they will eventually gain the freedom to bench press 300 pounds. So discipline is the path to freedom. So we don't try to just live like Christ on the spot. We live like Christ on the spot by doing the things that Christ did when he wasn't on the spot and disciplining ourselves with the means of grace that God has given us. That's where we're going in the spiritual growth camp or this for God and godliness series for about a month. Three things I want to leave you with 
really quick points. First of all, know that spiritual growth is gained by pursuit, not passivity. I'm not saying don't rest. I'm not saying I'm not talking about an anxious grinding type of effort. But I am talking about a life oriented and directed towards God. Secondly, and very importantly, so you think pursuit, not passivity. Secondly, think effort, not earning. Think effort, not earning. God's grace is not against effort. It's against earning. Titus 2 says, tells us, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So, in other words, the grace trains you. Once you have grace, it's now active in you. And it carries you along. And that's why Paul said, By the grace of God I am what I am. Yet, I worked harder than them all. But it wasn't me, it was the grace of God in me. So, you see this, this his effort... And the grace of God at the same time moving in the same direction. So, pursuit not to passivity, effort not earning, joy not drudgery. Joy not drudgery. So, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. And he makes this point in a short but perhaps... I think one of the most profound parables he gives. The kingdom of God is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. In his joy. Why? Because the value of the contents in that field is far greater than anything he owns or anything he has. So understand, brothers and sisters, when we talk about for God and godliness, it's not, oh, I should be doing this. It, I don't want you to think should be doing, but you get to, you can. You don't just have to repent, you get to repent. I'm not saying you should be godly already. I'm saying you get to pursue godliness because it is the most, most worthy and precious thing that there is. And that's exactly, this is the exact mood that scripture is in. We get to. We've been enabled and called to his own glory and excellence. And I believe when the church truly commits themselves to a more devout and holy life is when the church will grow numerically because they will see a reality gripped. The people will see it be a church gripped by the reality of which they speak. Peter talks about how since we have these promises, how important is it that we live lives of holiness, hastening the day of the Lord. Do you know what the goal is of, Christi- of the church? 
to grow to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that's what we're talking about. And I press on towards that goal. And I invite you to do the same. And I am so blessed to look out and see so many faces that are in that same pursuit and that I admire and that are committed. And I'm thankful for you. And I want you to take this with the spirit that scripture, if, that scripture gives. If anything I said does not correspond to the mood of scripture, then just write me off. But those things that have and those things that encourage you to a more devout, holy, diligent, joyful pursuit of God and godliness, please embrace and grow.